A hefty canon of received wisdom piously cautions us that we should not judge by appearances. This hefty canon of received wisdom is wrong. Of course we should judge by appearances. The appearance of anybody is a reflection of how they have decided to present themselves to the world. This is very much true of players on the world stage. National leaders do, or at least should, give considerable thought to what they wear in public. Whether it is fair or not, and whether they like it or not, they will be seen to be projecting something of their country. There are countries which have a natural advantage here, those which have a distinctive traditional costume, at least one which their president or prime minister can suit up in without looking too much like they're about to measure you up for the roller coaster. Which national leaders do wear it well? Which national leaders don't? And how do you go about dressing the 20th century's most revered individual? This is The Foreign Desk. You have to find something that you look good in and that gives you a sense of presence. So we saw the new Italian prime minister has started to wear Armani for those power shoulders and the sharp lines. You do see what some of these new politicians and royals are doing, knowing that you have to project an image, image of being in control, and also respect for your audience. I'm here, I'm coming to see you, look at me. I'm engaging. Power dressing can be a dress, it can be color. Even if you want to make it look subtle, I think we need to move away from that idea of power dressing as shoulder pads and a suit that we had in the 80s. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined, first of all, in the studio by Natalie Theodosi, Monocle's fashion editor, and by Samantha Conti, Women's Wear Dailies, London bureau chief. Natalie, let's start by thinking about some people who have been notably good at using fashion to project soft power on the world stage. I think thinking about the topic overall and more recent history, One person that I would say is very good at it, thinking about beyond aesthetics, about how to use fashion as a communications tool and also to speak about and embrace fashion, was Michelle Obama or the Obamas in general, because she wholeheartedly, I think, embraced it and understood the power of fashion from the beginning, while in the past, a lot of other female politicians or first ladies tried or refused to speak about their clothing choices in fear of being criticized for being Mm. frivolous. Well, she was quite actively from early on, really thinking about what she was wearing and also talking about it when she was asked and she used her platform and the visibility that she was getting to really help showcase younger designers as well and very different American designers. In the past, usually a first lady would be associated with one or two designers, say Hillary Clinton and Oscar de la Renta, but she really embraced all of them and worked with brands from the established ones to younger designers and helped, in some cases, their business take off. Samantha, that does raise a point which I did intend to get to later, but we've got here already, so let's go with it. It's a double-edged thing for female politicians and leaders and public figures, isn't it? Because as Natalie correctly points out, the way women dress and present themselves is judged massively differently to how men are judged on how they're dressed, and it's easy to understand why serious female politicians and public figures and global leaders find that incredibly tedious. 
But is there an aspect of that which gives women an advantage in that they're not imprisoned by the suit and tie. They can have a bit of fun with it and they can project something in a way that men can't. Yeah, I would agree. They have a lot more scope to add a scarf, wear bright colour. I think whether you're a man or a woman in politics or whether you're a royal, you're always having to walk a line because you're in a position automatically where you're a diplomat. You can say certain things. You can't say other things. So you want to speak through your clothing and through the way that you dress. And at the same time, you can't look like you're spending too much time fussing over your look. So it becomes quite a challenge to go into a situation and dress for a situation where you're saying, I care about how I look. I'm promoting my country with my country's designers, my country's crafts, talent, with what I'm wearing. Yet, I don't think that much about it, where I'm thinking about my stylist and my nail polish or my shoes 24 hours a day. So I do think it's a challenge for both. And to go back to your question, women do have more scope because they just have a lot more color and pattern and accessories to play with. So just to follow that up, are there any definitions or parameters we could establish as to what works when you're doing this for male or female politicians and maybe what doesn't? I think for both women and men, and for the women in particular, you have to find something that you look good in. (laughs) You have to find something that flatters your figure and that gives you a sense of presence. Mm. So we saw the new Italian prime minister as soon as she was elected, has started to wear Armani for those power shoulders and the sharp lines. Now, whether or not you like her politics, whether you like anybody's politics, you do see what some of these new politicians and royals are doing. The Queen did the same thing Mm. with bright colours, block colours, standing out in a crowd, knowing that you have to project an image, image of being in control, And also, respect for your audience. I'm here. I'm coming to see you. Look at me. I'm engaging. Natalie, you mentioned earlier Michelle Obama as an example of somebody who was or is good at that. Are there examples that strike you as the opposite, male or female leaders, that whenever you see them on television, you just find yourself thinking, oh, no, not like that? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if we stick to the US, Melania Trump, who made some bad choices, I think, and was really criticized for the way she dressed. A lot of designers were not as willing to dress her for that reason as well. And you can think about the very first dress that she chose for Trump's inauguration, a Ralph Lauren blue dress that Mm -hmm. was draped and it was sort of reflecting Jackie Kennedy's own dress, which even that it was an elegant choice, but it showed from that moment a lack of authenticity, looking back instead of forward in a way. And then there were even bigger flops like going to visit a flat zone in Manolo Blahnik's Stiletto Hills, which just showed lack of empathy. Both tactless and impractical, I would have thought. (laughs) Definitely impractical, but also just a lack of empathy and not being in touch with the world and the people and, and what's going on. And there were a lot of examples like that. So I think the biggest 
faux pas that you can do in these kind of cases is offending people, not being in touch with your surroundings and showing lack of empathy with your dressing choices. Samantha, we've mentioned a bit the idea, and there are leaders who definitely embrace it, of trying to dress in clothes made by local designers, for example, to sort of turn themselves into kind of a a mannequin for the home produce, which... And you can certainly see that some uh, Jacinda Ardern makes a particular thing of that. But beyond just demonstrating the world that your country makes clothes that look good, how can leaders dress in a way that projects a positive image of the country? And again, I guess there's probably some who you might argue have a natural advantage there. Do countries where there is a tradition of traditional dress, other than just the usual sort of Western business attire, have an advantage here? Because they can go to a global gathering wearing the traditional dress of their homeland and they immediately cut something of a dash. I would absolutely agree. And we've seen that. We've seen that at the G7. We've seen it at the G20. We've seen it at the climate conferences. It's fabulous when countries are proud to wear their national clothing, what they would wear normally. It is yet again, as Natalie was saying, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign Mm. of respect to their own people and also to their peers on the world stage. This is who we are. Why should we dress in Western clothing if we are not from the West? And of projecting a confidence and cultural diversity. Are there rules around that, though, Natalie? Because it strikes me that, as Samantha was suggesting, if it is what your people actually wear on formal occasions at home, then fine. But do you run the risk of, if you turn up in something which is a a sort of more ancient archetype of traditional dress, making your country look somewhat quaint? Mm, I think that it's actually a powerful communication tool to tell the story or the heritage of your country and what you represent. You are right. I think no one should come with something that is more quaint. But if it is a traditional garment that people do wear in special occasions, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think, yeah, it's a great way to tell the world about your customs and different traditions, and also for us to look at all these different ways of dressing that aren't necessarily just the Western uniforms that we are used to. There was one leader I wanted to ask about particularly who we certainly have seen in 2022 using what he wears to project a particular image of himself and his country. This is, of course, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, who has worn many costumes in his career as a comedian and light entertainer and generally went about his business as president of Ukraine wearing a suit. But after Russia invades, of course, Samantha, he he starts doing all his addresses wearing a khaki T-shirt, sometimes embroidered with insignia of Ukraine or the Ukrainian armed forces. It's an interesting choice because he's he's not a soldier, except to the extent that he is commander-in-chief of his nation's military. But how important has that decision been in underpinning his communication? Has it made it more powerful than it would have if he'd turned up wearing a suit and tie? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he's a fabulous communicator anyway. He mm. manages to get his image and his voice, everything beamed across the world at all incredibly important cultural moments at the Cannes Film Festival, at the Venice Biennale. He's there, and he's there in his T-shirt and his military look and very casual. And he, with that outfit or with those outfits, is immediately able to project, Mm. we are on war footing. I am with the people, and I am running around being a diplomat, being a leader, and also trying 
to work our way out of this mess. And it's an immediate way of communicating. I am with my people. Natalie, how careful do civilian leaders, which is what President Zelensky is, have to be with the military, though? Because at around the same time that he started wearing those khaki T-shirts for his public addresses, of course, President Emmanuel Macron arranged to have his picture taken wearing a hoodie emblazoned with the logo of, I think I'm right in saying, French Army's Airborne Commandos unit. And it's very hard to think of somebody less like a French Airborne Commando than, than Emmanuel Macron. What are the rules for embracing the military thing? Because we see US presidents do it quite a lot. They will occasionally wear, for example, the Air Force One leather jacket or something else emblazoned with something military adjacent. To be honest, I think it's a question of common sense in most (laughs) cases. In Zelensky's case, of course, the country is going through war, so it does make sense that he will have to shed the formalities in many ways. He's also not freshly shaven, and it's an immediate way of to project the state that he's in, the state that his country's in. But when it comes to that picture of the French president, it had exactly the opposite effect because it showed the pretense. And I mean, he was in a gilded uh, room in the (laughs) Elysee Palace. So (laughs) there was nothing positive that came out of that image. So in my head, it is just common sense and understanding your surroundings and the circumstances and being sensitive to what's going on. I did kind of want to give President Macron a certain amount of credit there for trying in some small way, Samantha, to escape the straitjacket of the suit and tie that Western leaders are usually caught in. But is there anything that the male leader of a country where that is the default work outfit can do to do something different, to project their nation abroad in a distinctive way without looking like a jackass? I'm going to answer that in an indirect way, and I would point you to the G20 in Bali, Mm. where a lot of Western leaders for an evening event chose to wear batik shirts. Mm. So they went to the country and they chose to nod or to embrace a local fabric, a local print. So I think that, yes, you can do that. You can go to another country and say, hey, it's hot or it's cold or whatever, and we want to honor you by wearing something from your country or by nodding to a tradition or a craft. So I do think that they can do it that way. We also saw over the past year Depending on the weather, once again, they've put on ties, they've taken off ties. Mm. So there's a popped collars, button the collars back up again. So it's a back and forth often, depending on the mood, depending on the weather. I think that of late, both because of the weather and because of the seriousness of what's been happening, worldwide economy, the crisis in Ukraine, the ties are back on. The ties are back on because they have to show (laughs) that they are buttoned up literally and serious about getting business done. Natalie, what do you think? Is there a way around the suit and tie? If you are the leader, for example, of a G20 country, aside from the occasional opportunity to wear a batik shirt if the summit happens to be in Indonesia, is there anything you can do to say something distinctive about your country on the world stage? I mean, as I say it, I'm trying to run through in my head the options that an Australian Prime Minister would have, and no, he can't really add the trilby with corks hanging off it to the normal (laughs) outfit, can he? I think there are situations, especially 
recently where you really can't avoid the suit and the tie. And like Sam said, these days you have to also just button it all the way up and make sure your tie is perfect. But I think in general, sometimes even if you can't avoid the suit, you can choose a slightly different color, go away from the navies and the blacks. You can play with color a little bit with your accessories. I think the Canadian litter is always good with socks. He adds a <laughs> bit of humor with his socks. So there's, it's more about little details that you can play with than completely move away from the suit, I think. Concluding thoughts then, I guess, and obviously you both have an interest in this because fashion is where you work, but is it ever a source of frustration for you when you watch people not taking chances? If we've established in this conversation that there's good reasons why they might prefer to avoid taking chances, do you think people could be having more fun with it, that this is an underutilised soft power weapon, if you like? I definitely agree. I wouldn't necessarily phrase it as taking chances. I just think it's being a little more thoughtful, Mm. knowing what you look good in and knowing what's going to make you look good on a screen or in the middle of a crowd or in front of an audience and running with that and projecting that, just giving it more thought. I think in the UK, we're used to seeing myriad parliamentarians who Mm. are on TV all day, every day, or photographed walking in and out of Downing Street or Parliament. And you just think, oh my gosh, if you'd only just given it 10 or 15 more minutes thought, (laughs) this whole outfit could have been different. So I agree. And I do think it's rare when people do, men and women alike, when they really get it right. It's rare. But I do think that it's a question of just stopping and thinking. That goes back to something you were saying earlier, Natalie, about common sense, which does seem like a fairly good metric to apply in this, as indeed most instances. But just finally, if, for example, some or other leader of a G20 nation, male or female, approached you for advice, and they could do worse, and said, like, you know, I want to cut a bit of a dash in the group photo, I want to say something positive about our country, I want to send a message about what makes my nation great, what would you advise them? I would definitely advise them to try and work with a younger designer from their country because not only would that be a great statement, they have such visibility, they could literally transform that designer's business. And independent young brands do struggle, especially these days, a lot. And to women leaders, I think I would say not to try and fit into uniforms and and look at power dressing as in I have to wear a suit Mm. and to embrace femininity a little bit because power dressing can be a dress, it can be colour. Even if you want to make it look subtle, I think we need to move away from that idea of power dressing as shoulder pads and a suit that we had in the 80s. Natalie Theodosi and Samantha Conti, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Most male politicians do adhere to the safe-if-drab template of suit and tie. One who notably did not was Nelson Mandela, former president of South Africa, Nobel Peace Laureate, probably the late 20th century's most admired human, and someone who, therefore perhaps, realised that he could wear what he liked. 
Joining me now from Miami is Desiree Bierski, a South African fashion designer and the mastermind behind the famous colourful shirts worn by Nelson Mandela, also known as the Madiba shirt. Desiree is also the author of Mandela's Shirts and Me. Desiree, first of all, obvious introductory question, how do you end up designing shirts for Nelson Mandela? The preamble to the story is quite a fascinating one, even for me, because in the late 80s, early 90s, I was still over here in the United States. My parents had immigrated here with my brother, my sister, and myself, 1980. And uh, right around the time that they were you know, talking about releasing Nelson Mandela from jail, I became kind of fascinated in the story. I think earlier before that, I was a bit too young to know too much. I wasn't politically savvy in those days. I was in the United States at that time, and I began to hear this rumblings about Nelson Mandela going to be freed out of jail, and I became very interested in, in what South Africa might look like as opposed to what it seemed like when I left there. And I started having this uh, sort of just a personal dream and a passion to want to meet this man. I then returned to South Africa in 1990, just as Nelson Mandela was about to come out of jail. And uh, soon after his release from jail, I had this really personal, deep desire to meet the man. I think people around me were kind of, you know, thought it was a bit of an oddity, though (laughs) nobody ever said anything. But then what happened was, I think it was the 7th of June, 1994, it was a couple of days before his inauguration, I heard that he was coming to make a speech at a synagogue down in Cape Town, very close to where I lived. That night when I got home after learning that he was going to be there tomorrow morning, I got an outfit ready for myself to wear and I decided that I wanted to give him a gift. And really it was already closed time for my store and there was no time to go and get a, a gift card at that point. So I went to my closet and I discovered that I had a long sleeve shirt from my store back in America, literally a year before that had landed up in my closet. I hadn't ever used it. It still had a tag on it. So this shirt appeared in in my cupboard when I opened it and was like, okay, look, this is an extra large. Let me just grab it. It will do. And I figured the guy's never going to wear it anyway. He's going to probably give it away or, you you know, maybe use it as a pajama top is really what I thought might would happen to it. And the very next day, I went down to the synagogue with this shirt wrapped up. It happened to be a black and tan fish print, literally with Mm. fishes on it. I'd been working in Indonesia for many, many years. So that next morning, I went down to the synagogue and noticed there was this red carpet going inside. And and there were three photographers. And I went up to them and I said, I want to give, he wasn't our president yet. I said, I want to give Nelson Mandela this gift. And they looked at me like, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> and I kind of very sheepishly walked away from it, like, okay, well, that wasn't the right place or time. And I went inside with my gift. And the next thing, uh, we're sitting in the synagogue. Nelson Mandela makes his appearance and he gives this incredible speech that literally brought me personally to tears. I wasn't sobbing in there, but I certainly was shedding a few tears down my cheeks because he, his speech was literally penned around the fact that Many people, many Jews had left South Africa. The families Mm. had been split apart because of apartheid. And he said to us, we're asking you, I'm asking you to tell your families, tell your friends to come back from overseas, tell them to bring their skills and what they've learned 
and bring it into this country. We need you guys back here. And, you know, at that time, I two siblings, my brother and my sister, and my parents were still in America. I was the only one that had come back at that stage. And uh, at the end, they said that he's going to be having, you know, tea and coffee with some of the special guests there and the, and the head rabbi of South Africa. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try and find my way to his driver. Maybe I'll access it that way. And when I got outside, it was another one of those amazing moments where the street was completely lined with every color person of the rainbow, all standing arm in arm, locked together, waiting for, well, certainly my hero. And it was so busy, but his car was right in front of me. It was a Mercedes Benz. And my instinct just said, go up to the driver and knock on the window. And I did. And the window came down and I said to this man, um, thank you for you know allowing me to communicate with you. I've got this gift I want to give to Nelson Mandela. Please, could you you know help me? And he got out of the car and he whistled to the gentleman standing at the back of the car. And he pointed to me and he said, go and give it to him. It was one of Nelson Mandela's bodyguards, this very big black man dressed in a beautiful jacket and tie and whatever. And I made my way through the crowd to the back of the car and looked up at this huge man. And I said to him, please, please, can I ask you to give Nelson Mandela this gift for me? And with that, he popped open the back of the, we call it the boot, and he took the shirt and there was no hesitation from him. And then I just literally gave him this huge big hug and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And please send my love to Nelson Mandela. I went home that night and, you know, told my parents who were still in America at the time about it. And I was elated. But what happened after that was mind blowing. Literally, so that was a Saturday. On the Monday was Nelson Mandela's inauguration. And on the day of his inauguration, they had a dress rehearsal. I mean, who would know that that even happens? And at that dress rehearsal, he wore that shirt. What happened after that is I called immediately to his personal assistant. Her name was Mary Makladana. And I said to her, Mary, I'm the lady that made the shirt that Madiba was wearing yesterday. And then I said, can I send some more shirts? And it took a year until I actually got to meet him. But my relationship was building with Mary and I started receiving handwritten notes from Nelson Mandela and also dictated notes to Mary, thanking me and all kinds of things. So this relationship started to build. By that point, at the end of the year in December of the first year in 94, I had already given him about a dozen shirts, but they were the shirts that I was already making in my store. I hadn't gotten to meet him until May of 95, when I got a call from Mary to say, are you going to be in Cape Town tomorrow morning? Because I'd like to invite you to have breakfast with the president. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? And going to that meeting was the most exciting moment of my life because I got to then say to him, I'd like to be of service to you. And he said, well, how would you like to make silk shirts for me? And I was like, wow, okay, I can do that. I'll do that for you. So I then said to him, could you tell me what are your favorite colors? And his immediate response was earth tones. And I knew then that, you know, the color of the rainbow has got like, you know, 101 colors, but I started creating shirts for him that were all in the earth tones of browns, golds, 
um, even black and white. And then I started to get into to more of the blues and the teal blue greens. And um, because I started making so many shirts for him, and then I started getting calls from his assistant, Mary Makladana. She said to me, Desiree, Madiba is going off to London to go and visit the Queen and he needs like some special shirts. He needs some black shirts, more formal shirts. And so I even did a range of black silk. Um, some of them were embroidered. And then for me, what was really like mind blowing is that I would see him like on the international stage, you know, at all these different levels of our international governments, if you will, whether it's from the UN to, you know, all these other organizations. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, he's the only one that is up there not wearing a drab suit and a tie. (laughs) And I think that what transpired through this is that he was actually making a statement by not wearing a suit and a tie. And I think it was twofold. The shirts in his way set the stage for him. Because of his time in jail and having to wear those revolting safari suits, even when it was freezing, short pants and a button-down plain brown shirt, the last thing he wanted to do was follow the rules, so Mm. to speak. So the one was his time in prison. And the second was he wanted to be out there make an impact, make a statement that said, I am different to you. I am not the same. And I come with a different message. And I really do believe that Nelson Mandela's intention and message was one of unity and peace, not just for South Africa, but for the whole world. That was Desiree Bierski. You can find more of Desiree's Madiba shirts by heading to the website presidential.co.za. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.